You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Josh and I serve as one of the co-pastors here at Forefront, and, and I just want to right out of the gate admit uh, something and put it out there, that I, I've spent so much time with this sermon this week, and I spent so much time with this sermon this week because I kept thinking, I want it to be perfect, <laughs> and if you were here for Pastor Angela's sermon last week, one of the antidotes to racism was to let go of perfectionism, <laughs> and I kept reminding myself, like, that is a quality of, of white supremacy culture, right, that everything has to be perfect, and I kept uh, reminding myself, like, that the, the room and the space and the grace um, for it not to be perfect, that there's going to be things that I, that I leave out that I should have said. There's going to be things that I get and that, and that I don't understand. There's going to be things that I may say that maybe land for some of us and don't land for others. Um, but I also felt a sense of pressure because in this four-week series, um, I am the only white person speaking. And I really, really, really hope... Um, that the things that I have to say will help other white people continue to take steps in being an actively anti-racist person, but also to realize we're a part of a larger collective of an anti-racist church and trying to build an anti-racist world. And so I felt that pressure this week. Um, and, and so I, I, I just want to like name it, because if I name it, then I won't hold myself to it. Just something about that. Um, and so I'm just going to lay that out there today. Back in 2016, when I was in my first year of seminary in Chicago, um, I was right in the midst of deconstructing my worldview and my religious beliefs, and I had just come out as affirming. Uh, this sort of upended everything. And don't laugh, because I know this may be hard to believe, but before coming out in 2015, I was basically a very like, white, straight, cis-passing male. <laughs> I know you're laughing. Do we have pictures at all of me in seminary? Do you have those pictures? Um, <laughs> That was Halloween. That was Halloween in seminary. Um, but somehow I was passing still. Just kidding. <laughs> Gosh. Um, I went as a lesbian cheerleader. Um, so the funny thing about, about the reality is, is that like, I lived most of my life before this moment here, uh, starting seminary, as, as, as a white, straight, cis male. And, and I experienced all the privileges of being somebody who sort of lives at the privilege hierarchy. And what I mean by that is that, like, the world was built for me, right? Everything was tailored towards my specific audience. And many of that reason is because for, for most of history, that has been who is the architect of society, of culture, of the world, uh, who has the most power. And so I lived most of my life at that place. But once I came out, um, I started experiencing what it felt like to be rejected, what it felt like to be treated differently, for something that I couldn't change about myself. I felt what it was like to have a shift in losing privilege for the first time. And all of a sudden, that invoked in me a lot of questions. I'm like, okay, oh, this is, this is a weird feeling to be discriminated against, to be treated differently, to have to sort of figure out what spaces I should sort of tamper down or code switch or change my voice or maybe not wear the, you know, cheerleader outfit. Um, like, what, what are the spaces and places that I have to look different so that I don't lose my privilege? And how do I, like, grasp onto it as I felt myself losing it? 
But the bigger thing that happened in seminary as I began to grapple with losing of my privilege was um, I began to wonder, like, I wonder what it's like for women and people of color. And then I began to ask, I wonder, like, what my prejudices are towards women and people of color. I began to ask these questions, and a lot of these questions began to be invoked because of a date that I went on. Um, I went on this date, and honestly, uh, I thought it went really great. At the end of the date, um, we walked back to my place. I thought he was going to come upstairs. He didn't come upstairs. Instead, he gave me a hug, said goodbye, and ghosted me. And I couldn't figure out why he ghosted me. I didn't understand it. And so I just texted him, texted him, and texted him, you know? You know, you just spiral. And I was a new gay. I was fresh out of the closet. And so, like, I didn't really know how this all worked or that that made me look, like, needy or, like, kind of creepy. And so I couldn't let it go. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? And why isn't he texting me back? And, like, what happened? I thought this date was so great. He did hug me before we left. And so I just, like, spiraling. And finally, one day, after, like, weeks of texting him, he finally responds back. And he's like, listen, I can't go on a date with another white person who is not aware of their racial biases and racist tendencies. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. And so I said, can you tell me more? Like, what, what did I say? What did I do that made you think that? Another weeks of ghosting happened. And finally, I sent him this text, and I was like, how can you expect me to ever change or be any different if you don't tell me what I did? And so he told me the things that I said. It was our date that happened on the 4th of July. What an awakening for racism to occur. Um, and we, were, we had met for dinner, and then we went to watch the fireworks. And at the end of our date, um, I, I, or I mean, about halfway through our date, I thought, I think I'm going to like move in, and I'm going to like make the kiss. So I kissed him. I thought, oh, this is going really good. But then there were some folks behind us that were sitting on a, on a, on a blanket as well, and they were speaking another language. And I turned to him, and I said, I bet they're talking about us. And he didn't say anything. And then I thought, well, maybe he just, like, didn't hear me, you know, didn't understand what I was trying to say. So I'm going to say, I said, I bet they're talking about us being gay. And he said, well, I don't know about that. And I said, oh, okay, all right. But I, I really wanted to know what they were saying. I could hear them. They were laughing. They were talking. They were having a great time. And I just couldn't help but think, they're probably talking about me. They're probably talking about us. And then a little while after the date, we kept walking uh, back to my apartment, and we, we passed this store and as we passed this store, I turned to him and I said, that, that store doesn't really fit in this neighborhood, does it? And this is the picture of that store. I, just, I lived three blocks from a predominantly white, and, uh, or three blocks from Northwestern, which is a predominantly like, very white, middle to upper class neighborhood. And nuzzled in this neighborhood was this store that I would pass all the time. And so I just spoke my thoughts out to another fellow white person, thinking that they would agree with me. And his response was silence. Now, these were the things that he told me I said after our date. And I had to sit with them and go, well, why is that racist? <laughs> and I had, he didn't answer that for me. He didn't do that work. We never talked again after that. But it began a journey for me to begin to figure out, like, well, there are things that I'm saying that I don't think are racist. So I got to figure out why this person thinks they're racist. Because I know what it's like to be discriminated against, to be treated differently, to have comments made to me and my family or my friends say, that's not homophobic. And me be like, mm, no, that is. And so I started that journey. Part of that journey was there was a class at my uh, seminary that was on, on anti-racism and decolonization. 
And so I thought, that's a great way and place for me to perhaps learn. So I signed up. I was one of very few white people in the class. I began to find out that a lot of the white people in the seminary thought that, like, well, that's class clearly for black people, not for white folk. And I couldn't help but think, like, as I went through the class, that really so much of the class, while it did deal with internalized racism and deal with sort of revisionist uh, history around white and black culture and and all of these sort of elements of, of decolonizing and breaking down and deconstructing our beliefs and thoughts, I couldn't help but sit there and think, like, how instrumental this was in opening my mind and my heart and how all of my classmates should have been required to take that class as part of their course of study. As I journeyed through this experience, I, and as I reflect on it now, even thinking, um, we just did a, a, a book group, Reverend Vanita led a book group called God is a Black Woman. And majority of the people that signed up for the God is a Black Woman small group were, what do you think? Black women. When in reality, I think that we all, particularly white folk, would have really benefited from being in a Bible study that would have expanded our worldview, as well as our view of God, as well as our view of blackness and race and identity. I think we often do this, right? We, we, we think that's, that's their problem, or that's our problem, or that's for that group, or not this group, or I shouldn't be in that space. But I want to invite you to this at Forefront, that unless it, is unless it is promoted and explicitly said that this is a group just for a particular race or a particular sexuality or gender, like Cheers Queers, then you are invited. You are highly encouraged to be a part of that. Why? Because it helps us see God, see our neighbors, see ourselves beyond what we've been taught beyond the individualistic viewpoints that we have found ourselves siloed in. Many of the folks uh, that attended the anti-racism training were from different races and groups and ethnicities, backgrounds and cultures and ages and sexualities. And, you know, honestly, while it was, it was, it was absolutely beneficial for, 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 for white folks, I also heard many people of color who came to anti-racism training that said that was really beneficial for them and they weren't really sure if it would be or not. And you know what? It's because there's so much internalized racism living in a culture where there's one dominant way of being. There's so much, even within, uh, even within black culture, right, where there's this sort of comparison. And we heard people say at the anti-racism training things like, in my race, racial group or my, my heritage or my family, I'm often told I'm not black enough. Or I've let go too much of our black culture in order to be the model minority. Reality is, is we have all been caught up in this system of being categorized by what is good and what is bad. And we all benefit from this sermon series and from all of the conversations that will come from it. We've all been poisoned by it and we've all lost something because of it. The work of anti-racism is working to be, is, is the work that we are all called to do collectively because we've been poisoned by all of it. And quite frankly, I think it's important for all of us to stop and to remember that just like there are black people who have given up parts of their culture in order to assimilate into white culture, so too white people, we, our ancestors, had to give up parts of themselves in order to just be considered a part of the white collective. And so, like, you ask me what my racial heritage or background is, I don't know, i got to go pull up my, my ancestor DNA again. Because I don't know. 
And I don't know what it means to have a German heritage or an Irish heritage because that's been wiped away from us to be bought into this narrative that we are just white and that's all that matters. We've lost something in our own heritage, in our own identity. Many of our white ancestors even had to change their names, Irish particularly, had to change their names in order to fit into white culture. How convenient that all you have to do is change your name. But also what is lost in that. Today, we are diving into this third antidote of racism and white supremacy culture that both poisons white folks and pins POC against each other and manifests as internalized racism. We're going to dive in and we're going we're to take a deep look at this today. And I, and I, I want us to, to think about this, uh, for this third antidote as this. It is collectivism over individualism. Collectivism over individualism. When you just think about your own experiences, when you just think about me and what I think or what I believe or, my, or who I am or, or my understandings of things, or you think, I don't need anybody else, I can do this by myself, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and get through this, so can you. When you think about it that way, when you think about it as an individualized mindset, it is not just oppressive towards those around you, but it is also oppressive towards yourself, for we were never built to live in that mindset in that way. We are called to be a people who are collective, to not just love ourselves, but to love people. So uh, T.M. Okun, who sort of has really inspired this whole series, he talks about all these different antidotes. We haven't been able to go through all of them, but some of the, some of the ones that we've drawn out, this is one of them, and then he highlights is collectivism over individualism. And this is what he says for white people, it's for us to be able to consider to think about. He says, for white people, seeing yourselves and or demanding to be seen as an individual and not as part of the white group creates a failure to acknowledge any of the ways dominant identities, gender, class, sexuality, religion, able-bodiedness, age, education, to name a few, are informed by belonging to a dominant group that shapes cultural norms and behaviors. I was taught a cultural norm that English was the acceptable and dominant language in the United States. And that if somebody was talking another language, it's probably because they're talking about you. Austin and I went and got our nails done for our wedding, uh, for our batch, bachelorette party. We had a bachelor party with all the bunch of gay men and one straight guy. And then <laughs> we had our bachelorette party with all the women that were in our party. And we went and got our nails done. And the, the people who were doing our nails were talking a different language to each other. And there the, came the thought again into my head. I consider myself a fairly woke person. And there I sat. I wonder if they're saying anything about me being gay. I wonder if they're saying anything about me being a guy getting my nails done. I wonder if they're talking about me. And it's in my head. It's still there. Now, what I do with it is totally different now than what I would have used to have done with it. I wouldn't have thought a second thought about that before. I might have even called the person out. Hey, what are you saying? Are you talking about me? I would never do that now. But there it was. There was the thought. Still there. Still in my head, just six years later. I want us to sit with the reality that, that we've been taught that, but I've also been taught that there are certain neighborhoods that are curated by class and by culture. And so certain businesses and certain people and certain establishments shouldn't exist in that class and culture of a neighborhood. And so what did I say when I saw that establishment in what seemed like a place that didn't belong? And I thought nothing of it. Why? Because I belong to a dominant culture and belief system that says 
That's just the way that America is. That's just the way it's supposed to be. Not realizing the layers of internalized racism. I mean, the, I mean the, the, the layers of oblivious racism that I now can no longer claim to be oblivious. And I obli- was only oblivious because I didn't view it as racism. I just viewed it as the norm. So notice that I will never say this was my issue. This is my issue. It is my issue because from the time that I was born, everything around me has shaped my mind to see the world in such a way as these things are good and these things are bad. And the work that I must do every day intentionally to dismantle and to acknowledge and to not respond to the inclinations by which I have been poisoned and wired to think about the world is a daily work. In order to be someone who is, who is anti-racist, we must actively be willing to acknowledge the racial, racial bias and the cultural norms and behaviors that don't just disappear once we become woke, but instead we are invited to be actively anti-racist by acknowledging our racist thoughts and actions and intentionally choosing to embrace the opposite of our racist impulses. Just a few weeks ago as we were unloading the van... There's just two of us here starting to unload the van in the morning. And we put some things out by the roulette door here. I didn't write this in my sermon, but it just came to me right now. We put some things by the door here. And I turned my back to go back to the van. And there was a black couple that was walking down the street. And I turned to make sure nobody grabbed anything. Now, whether they were black or white, I would have turned because I always do that when I put things out uh, when I'm unpacking. But her reaction to me, she said, we weren't going to take anything. And my first reaction was, I wanted to say, well, I didn't think you would. I was just being cautious. But then I stopped and went, why did she think I thought she was going to take something? How many times have people looked back? How many times have people crossed the street as, the, as she walked down the street? How many times have people questioned her or not allowed her to just buzz and walk up into an apartment because they thought she was suspicious going to visit a friend at a building? How many times? And here I was, another white person. So no matter what my intent was, the impact landed. And that's what we're called to attend to. She kept walking, and I'm glad I kept my mouth shut. I'm glad I sat with it. But I also was sad that we live a part of this system, that no matter how individualistically, even if she didn't know what I was thinking or feeling, that we're still part of this system, that my white skin staring at her black skin with a spirit of suspicion, it would have hit. And that's just the world that we live in, and it's a sad and unfortunate reality, and to deny it is to deny one another's humanity and the story that is our story that led us to this point in history. Another thing that Akun recommends is acknowledging that not all white people have internalized racist conditioning. I'm sorry, that all white people, (laughs) you do, we do, have all internalized. As soon as I read it, I was like, what? That's a lie from the pit of hell if I've ever seen it. Satan, get behind me. Um, racist conditioning, and that anti-racist commitment is not about being good or bad. 
It's about figuring out what we are going to do about our conditioning. What are you going to do about your conditioning? There's no need to deny, I'm not a racist. You have been groomed to be a racist. What are you going to do about it now? Just like our society has been groomed to put women underneath men, what are you going to do about it now? Just like society has been groomed to believe that gay people are not equal to and maybe even heathens over straight people, what are you going to do about it? We've been taught these things. What are we going to do about it? To deny them is to do nothing. And this, for black and indigenous folks and people of color as well, they, they believe the narrative, right? That you should give up your language or your traditions or your dress or your friends, your culture markers in order to assimilate into dominant culture. We give these, you give these things up and in, and in doing so, you lose a part of yourself. And as a white person, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that we have ever and that we continue to expect that of you. We are less rich because of it. You are less rich because of it. And the work is to do is to make space for it. Today, I realize that we're I'm, I'm about, about at time, and I haven't even dug into the scripture text. <laughs> so let me just highlight this text as we land this plane. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, there's this sort of moment where everything is sort of climaxing in the early church. You've got these people that are coming from all different traditions and backgrounds and histories, all kind of coming together to try to follow this new faith, this new shared value. You have people that are coming, who, some who are Romans and Gentiles and pagans and Samaritans, all very different cultures. At that time, would have been very separated by neighborhood, most likely as well. They would have all been broken up. You would have had different levels and categories of who was allowed to, to dine and, 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 and to be in the company of different individuals. You had men and women and children, those who were enslaved, those who were the slaves. I mean, those who were the enslavers, those who were refugees, those who were citizens of Rome and those who were not, all coming together to try to form this faith. And let me tell you, nothing about it was perfect, right, Pastor Angela? It was messy. It was real messy. It was hard work. There were many different beliefs and cultures and practices, and in the midst of all of it, they were trying to figure it out. And one of the things that they were trying to figure out was what to do with their food laws. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, Paul speaks to this. He says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat sacrificial food that they think of it as being sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But does, food does not bring us near to God. Look at this last part. We are no worse if we do eat it or no better if we do. So basically, the early church, there were some people who were like, you know, I know we've always eaten food sacrificed to idols, but I just don't feel good about it anymore. I'm not going to do it. And other people were like, it's fine. Who cares? It's food. We're hungry. Just eat it. <laughs> and Paul's like, listen, I know you have different cultures. You have different experiences. You have different consciences. Neither of you are more superior than the other if you do or don't eat it. Do what you need to do, but don't treat the other like shit because of it. <laughs> Seriously. But this is like a glimpse of what happens in white supremacy culture, right? You're less than because you don't embrace this thing or this part of the culture or that part of your culture is weak compared to this. And so you're no, be- you're no good. You're, no- you're not as good. We're superior. 
And Paul is calling this out in this, in this narrative. And I love what, what Paul later goes to talk about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, For you're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you've all been united with Christ in baptism. So put on Christ. Put on new clothes. This is the best part. You know it. I'm sure it's familiar to many of us. Maybe some of us the first time we've heard it. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. I don't think Paul is calling us to colorblindness here. Okay? Nobody who's black wants you to not see their color. No one who speaks another language doesn't want you to hear them speaking the other language when they're talking and they just pretend it's another language. No one wants that. They want you to see their blackness and go... I love your blackness, and I love everything that your culture brings with your blackness. I love your language, and I love everything that your language brings with your language. That's what Paul is calling us to in this text. He's saying, listen, those of you who are Jews and you think you're more superior than Gentiles, no, you're all children of God, baby, all of you. Those of you men who think you're more superior than women and can use your foot on the back of their neck, No! Get it off. Stand side by side. You're all children of God, baby. That's what Paul's saying here. And Paul says, those of you who are enslaved and you are treated like you are less than because you do not have the same freedom. And those of you who are are enslaving people and you think that you're better than and that you can actually do that in dignity and respect and you want to treat people less than and use them. No. We are all children of God. There is no more slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and free. I mean, male and female who need to be free. There's no more of that. We are all children of God. Cut out the superior context. For it is oppressive, and it requires you to make one person less than you greater. And and I never created any humans to be any greater than the other. God is the greatest of all. We are all equals that come from God. So, in our last minute together, what are some ways that we can actively dismantle this white supremacy characteristics and value collectivism over individualism Number one, I will call us to seek to understand all the ways we are informed by our dominant identities and how our membership in these dominant identities, in these groups, inform how we both covertly and overtly treat each other and treat others. Number two, understand how membership in a dominant group, the white group, the male group, the hetero group, the wealthy group, it extends psychic and spiritual and emotional benefits as well as material benefits. To know where you are in your privilege hierarchy, to know that you are given certain privileges because of those things, to acknowledge that, to not deny it, to realize you're part of something bigger. You cannot just think about your own individual experience, but to realize the larger collective that you are a part of in a system. The third thing, to actively let go of supremacy complexes, that one way is better or normal, remembering that deeming people or cultures as better or as normal requires that we dehumanize all those designated as less than and abnormal. Did you guys catch that? In order to make something normal, you have to make something abnormal. And in doing so, you have to dehumanize that person. Therein lies the problem. And the fourth one, which is make teamwork and collaboration a normal practice. Acknowledge that teamwork and collaboration take more time, particularly at the front end. 
and they yield better results with higher buy-in and higher ability to take shared risks. I think that, for me, um, choosing to come to Forefront, I chose to be a part of a church where I knew I was going to be in a minority on a staff because I was ready for a new challenge to stretch myself. I was ready to learn a different way of doing church. And because I believed that ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity did not look like working at all white churches anymore. And that if I wanted to be a part of that, that was going to be hard work. But hard work that had to be done. And honestly, I love being at Forefront. And it has been, Austin knows, one of the most stretching years of my career. <laughs> part of that's coming out of a pandemic. Part of that is just like constantly having really courageous and vulnerable conversations with our staff of being called out on things I say or things I do. Huh? Oh, called in. Yes, called in. I love this. Much more invitational. Being called in to be able to see these places and to do the work, to attend to the impact after I've acknowledged the intent. And so church, I'm calling us to be a part of a group, a collective, to do the work. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but God, is it worth it? Because that's the work Jesus did. He sat in the uncomfortable places and the messy places and the places that got him in trouble but guess what? Because he did it, the people called him a friend of sinners. Not a friend to sinners, as if it was some type of petty handout, but a friend of sinners. Church, let us be each other's friends. Let us lay down our supremacy complexes. Let us see the larger collective that we're a part of. And as we do it, may we see each other as beloved children of God. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.